Good morning. This is lesson eight in our series in the book of Judges. And I've titled it, When Less is More. And actually, we're going to begin our study at verse 36 of chapter 6, but I will end at verse 23 of chapter 7, and we'll pick up from there next week. You've probably heard the expression uh, used often, the more the better, right? The more the better. And the assumption is that the more of something there is, the better it must be. And uh, I would like to suggest that that's not always true. But, but we tend to look and we say, well, if more people attended, it, it must have been better. If more people spent money or made money or gave money, that must be better. If more people prayed, then somehow God must have been moved more and better things would happen. Uh, over and over again, we hear that. I'm not saying that more is always bad. I'm saying that we have the assumption that somehow more is better and that less is worse. And that's just not the way it works in our text. And I think it's not the way that it works with God very, very often in our lives. So I hope this text will challenge us a little bit in some of our uh, assumptions. Uh, We come to a text that I think is one of our favorites, no blood and guts, no no Ehud and and Eglon, and and so we can all breathe a sigh of release. We don't have to clap our hands over our kids' ears so that they won't hear some terrible things that are happening to people. And... uh, But it's a familiar text, and because it's familiar, there's a way in which we may come to it with preconceived ideas that may or may not be right. So we need to at least recognize our familiarity sometimes can be an issue. Well, what are some of the things that have happened in Judges chapter 6 that sort of uh, prepare the foundation for what we're going to find in our our text here? You remember in chapter 6 that Israel once again sinned against God, God turned them over to the Midianites. The Midianites were that nomadic people who came in and rather than just set up shop and stay there, they would come in and literally pillage the land when the crops were ripe and they just literally took everything away and sort of stripped the land and the Israelites. And so they cried out to God and God sent them a prophet, not a, not a deliverer immediately, but a prophet. The prophet reminded the Israelites of all that God had done to deliver them in the past, and he had also warned them that they were not to turn to the gods of the Canaanites, but they were to worship him alone. And the word of the prophet was, you have disobeyed. That's the explanation for why Israel is in distress. Then we see an appearance of the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord designates Gideon as the man who is going to be the the deliverer that God is raising up to deliver the people of, of Israel. You remember that Gideon is not nearly so excited about this prospect as uh, you might hope he would be, and so he first of all has a test. And the test is that he wants to be sure that the one that is speaking to him is actually God, the God of Israel. And so he goes and he gets his offering. He brings the offering. And then when when the offering is set forth, the angel uh, touches that and and does uh, something miraculous to manifest himself and consumes that offering. And he realizes now that he has seen God face to face. 
And, uh, and God says to him, uh, don't worry, you will live. So he, call, he builds an altar and calls it uh, to the God of peace. Then God wants him to, to do something more public in nature. So he says to him that he is to take the altar, the heathen altar to Baal that belonged to his father. He is to tear that down. He is to take a couple of bulls, tear it down. And also the Asherah pole, which was involved in, in heathen worship, he was to tear that down and cut it up. He was to offer one of the bulls as a sacrifice to the Lord, and he was to do it on the wood that made up that uh, heathen uh, object of worship, uh, the ultimate insult, you could say, to Baal and to Asherah. In the morning... When the people of the town woke up and saw that their their uh, idol worshiping equipment had been uh, uh, blasphemed, literally, they demanded of Joash, uh, Gideon's father, that he present his son so that he could be put to death. And Joash now has a moment of great sanity and theological clarity, and he says, in effect, "Well, now isn't this something? The great Baal has to have somebody bail him out of trouble." And so he says, look, if Baal is so weak that he's got to have men come to his defense, then he's a wimp, and I don't want to serve him, and you shouldn't either, and if you try to touch my boy, I'll kill you. So uh, that changes the picture of things. The clan begins to change their mind, and then you remember the Midianites begin to assemble. The trumpet is blown. Gideon blows the trumpet after the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. And the people now gather, the Abiezrites, and also the uh, people of the, the whole tribe, Manasseh, gather along with Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Now, I'd like to suggest, and I know this, this may not be altogether true, but I'd like to suggest that perhaps the key comes at that place where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he blows the trumpet. I'm reading between the lines, so, so mark this off in your minds as, as suspect. But, but it seems to me that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon uh, reluctant Gideon, that he may do something that he isn't naturally inclined to do. In other words, Gideon has not been the guy who wants to be out in the front of the troops, who wants to take that first dangerous step. And so it seems to me the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and Gideon blows the trumpet, and, and now the Israelites, uh, Israelites begin to gather about him, at least 32,000 from what we can tell. And as they begin to gather, it's clear that Gideon and his people are on a high place and they are looking down into the valley of Jezreel and they are seeing the Midianite army. And you remember there are a couple of texts that tell us, especially verse 12 of chapter 7, these folks are innumerable. There is a host that is like the sand of the sea, and they have so many camels you can't even count them. And, and I see Gideon saying to himself at this moment in time, what in the world did I do? You know, I, and I don't know whether the spirit wore off or, or what happened, but it's as though he for a moment in time is sort of overcome by the spirit of God, does the right thing. But now here he is poised to do battle and, and he begins to have some thoughts about, you know, was this really a good plan or not? And that's when we come to the test with Gideon's uh, fleece in verses 36 through 40. You notice it is a twofold test. This guy would have been a great scientist. Would you not agree? 
I mean, he takes this test and he, and he wants to have it. First of all, he wants to have the, uh, the, the fleece wet and the floor, the threshing floor dry. And then he wants to have the fleece dry and the threshing floor wet. I mean, this guy, you know, he's really got the scientific method down. He's really checking God out. And, and so we have to ask the question, why is, the, why is there a need for a test? Well, I've suggested to you, number one, the circumstances now have him at the place where he's about to lead this group of, of 32,000 people to war against a group. You know that there's going to be a huge number of people who are killed in all of this. So this is really uh, still a David and Goliath scenario with 32,000 troops. It is, it is not a, a healthy situation. If you were an odds maker, you'd be betting on the Midianites. But... He's not seeking to know God's will. Let's make that clear. If you're looking at putting out the fleece to know God's will, that's not what this text is about. He says twice, Will you deliver Israel through me as you have said? There isn't any question about what God said. There isn't any question about God's will. The question is the through me part. Now, you think about yourself for a minute. We look at Gideon and, you know, we can beat on him all we want. The reality is most of us have far more confidence in God in general than we do in God in particular and especially in God in us. If we were to say, do you believe that God could could bring about a revival in the city of Richardson? You'd probably say, Sure. And you're thinking thoughts like Billy Graham and, you know, you've got these names of the kinds of people that you would have. If God said to you, I'm going to bring about a revival in Richardson through you, that's the hard part. And that's where Gideon is having his troubles. He really wonders how God can do a great thing through him. So it's not whether or not God has revealed as well. It's whether God has lost his mind (laughs) that he would do this. And so he wants the confirmation. So he gives the two tests. And, you know, God graciously and without rebuke uh, answers those. It reminds me of James chapter 1 where it talks about anyone, you know, who needs wisdom, that he let him ask of God and that God's going to give it to him without rebuke. We expect the God to be standing there tapping his toe, hands on his hips, just shaking his head, saying, oh, my goodness, Gideon, what is wrong with you, man? But he gives him the, uh, the confirmation. And it seems to me that there are, there are good things and bad things about this. We look at Gideon's uh, reticence and his doubts in the negative way, and, and it is true that it's not a commendable thing. This text is not saying, everybody go out and do therefore the same thing. Go out and doubt and fear. It's not saying that. It is good that Gideon does not trust himself. Is that not right? It is good that Gideon does not trust himself. Even if he's a coward, even if he's a wimp, there is a virtue in that from God's point of view. Because God's going to say, this is really all about my glory. Our inclination is to think that the kind of people God really wants and really needs and chooses are those people who are self-assured, who are confident, who've been voted most likely to succeed by their graduating class. That's not Gideon. 
But God doesn't want a self-confident, self-assured, arrogant man. He wants a fearful man because when we get through with this text, folks, we're not going to be saying, yay, Gideon, right? We're not because we know it was God. And God chose Gideon. He wanted exactly that kind of man because he's the kind of person who will make it clear it's God who gave the victory and not Gideon. The bad part is Gideon didn't take God at his word. You can't excuse that. God had told him what to do. He had told him that he would give him the victory and Gideon should have believed him. Next section, verses uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 7, I call thinning out the ranks. I think it's really interesting. One of the commentators pointed this out, and I think it's true. Gideon gives God a twofold test. Is that not right? In those verses, those last verses of chapter 6. God graciously answers, but he's going to give Gideon a twofold test. He's going to reduce the army from 32,000 to 10,000, test one. And then he's going to reduce the 10,000 down to 300, test two. And it's like God said, you want to test me, Gideon? I can do that. Now, here's a little test for you. So in spite of the fact that God's given him the reassurance, uh, he's got some, some uh, adjustments he's going to have to make because this is a major move. So here you have, oh, by the way, did you notice verse one? He's called Jerubbabel. Now, then from then on, it's called Gideon. Why does he do that? Because the author is reminding us of chapter 6. It's his father who gave him the name Jerubbabel, which means let Baal, let Baal contend. And the author is reminding us that that issue is still here. The Baal, uh, who, who uh, the uh, people of the town wanted to defend by killing Gideon, He's now the guy, Gideon, who is going to lead the battle. And this is a battle, as it were, of the gods. God is going to demonstrate his sufficiency and adequacy and power as opposed to Baal, who is the wimp, who has to have somebody come to his defense. And, and of course, Jerubbabel, uh, Gideon, is the man who will be the leader. So you have, if you were looking at a map, and I, I was tempted to do this, but, but uh, Mount Gilboa will be down here as you're looking at Israel. And then you'd look at this uh, spring of water uh, that, uh, of the, that comes into uh, be the River Herod and flows out into the Jordan. And then you have the uh, hill of Mora. And if you were going a little farther to the north, you would see uh, Mount Tabor. So what I see is here's Gideon and his men, and they're, they're there at that spring. And just sort of over the hill and across the plain is, is this huge horde of Midianites who are gathered. And it's very evident to me that Gideon and his people are able to look out and see this whole throng of folks. And in the midst of all that, God's saying, you got 32,000 people, it's just too many. And I want you to notice that verse 2, it seems to me, is a key verse in all this section. And it reveals something about men. <laughs> and that is, men have a predisposition to take credit for what God does. Men have a predisposition to take credit for what God does. 
You remember when God said to the Israelites in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to go into this land and you're going to, you're going to have the use of all these farms and you're going to be a small and insignificant force, but I'm going to drive out the Canaanites before you. And he says, beware. Beware lest when you go in there, you begin to say, it was, it was because of who I am. It's because of my greatness and my power. And God says, it isn't true. In fact, when they went to offer the sacrifice, remember they had to use this expression, a wandering Aramean was my father. Why would they have to say that? What they're saying is, we really aren't much. (laughs) We don't have anything to brag about. He was few. They were few and insignificant, God said. There is that tendency. And so God is going to reduce the forces to the point and he's going to pick a leader who perfectly fits the bill so that when this thing is done, nobody says, hallelujah for Gideon, hallelujah for Israel. What they're going to say is, praise God. God is the one who gave the victory. God is the one who contended for his people. And it is not men. So he says, you've got too many, and therefore we need to to do some reduction. So phase one. The fearful are sent home. <laughs> Boy, that would have been tough. You get 32,000 people and 22,000 of them leave. Two-thirds of them were just rank cowards by their own admission. Now, i got to admit, they're sitting there on that mountaintop looking down on that plane. <laughs> and it would be a good time to be less than confident in yourself. I give those guys credit. And by the way, do you remember, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. God said, when you go to war... That they were supposed to give anyone who was fearful the opportunity to go home. You didn't want guys who were cowards on the front lines. And so this is really what God would have said in general terms. But the 22,000 now make their way home. By the way, I wonder how far they got before they got called again for active duty. I mean, it seems to me as this thing goes on, you got the 300 troops that are going to go do this, and then they're going to summon their fellow Israelites, and these guys are going to have to turn right around, go back, get back in the battle. Okay, so phase one, down to 10,000. Phase two, I call the lappers and the kneelers. And and you have, you know, this this story about those who, Gideon is to take them down to the water, and and, and as they're drinking, God makes a significant statement. He says, in effect, Gideon, you need to trust me in this. The people that I tell you go home, go home. And the people I tell you stay, stay. So it's like he's saying, I'm going to sovereignly make this decision. Don't you use your judgment. I'll use mine. And you follow my lead. Now, I'm sure Gideon would have stayed with a few more than 300 people. But when you get down there, the discussion is, and I've got the question, do I agree with Dale Ralph Davis? I love Davis. But at this one point, I have to say I'm going to get off his train because he contends that this has nothing to do with either a fearfulness or the lack of fearfulness. And, and he says that people have over-spiritualized, you know, the guys that get down and they, they quickly get the thing. They're looking around for the enemy with the other guys down there with their face in the water and not paying any attention. I don't know about that. I, I'm not sure that I'm willing to, to talk about the lappers and the kneelers with real expertise. But I will say this. I don't think that Davis is right that it's only about reduction of numbers. It is about that. But the 300 people who remain have got a mighty difficult task. They've got to surround an innumerable host of enemies. 
And when they break those uh, jars, hold forth their torches, and blow their trumpets, they stand their ground. They stand their ground. And literally all hell's going to break loose in that camp. Now, I have to tell you, I don't think that's a place for sissies. For 300 guys. So my contention is, yes, God sovereignly reduces the troops. He is clearly getting those forces down to a number where they can't take the credit for the victory. And by the way, folks, they're not going in with any weapons either. They're not going in with weapons. you got a torch in your left hand and you got a trumpet in your right hand. Uh, I don't know where that sword is, but it's not there. And they don't need one. So I think it is... Uh, reducing those people who would be faint of heart, but the numbers are so obviously uh, bad statistically, it is clear that this is God. One other thing, and maybe I'm overstretching this, but I noticed the NIV talks about the provisions. When those 10,000 minus 300, 9,700 guys go home, the way I read the text is they leave, they leave their provisions and supplies with the 300. Now, one of the things it tells me is they must not have had a lot of supplies <laughs> if the 300 are, are taking them over. But listen to the way the NIV reads. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept 300 who took over the provision and the provisions and the trumpets of the others. So here's the way I read it. When that group uh, of, of 10,000 is there, they have a certain amount. And maybe when the, the 22,000 left, they may have left some of their supplies for the, for the 10,000. When the 9,700 leave, they're leaving some of their provisions, which includes the torches and the trumpets. Now, that's all God needed. God didn't need numbers. As a matter of fact, I would contend that in the way God's strategy is planned out, too many people would be a problem in that kind of warfare because they weren't supposed to fight. They were supposed to give the impression of being surrounded. But it seems to me that just in, in the providence of God, in order to carry this thing out, you had to have 300 torches and 300 trumpets. Is that not right? I mean, what good would it do to stand out there surrounding people, you know, if you don't have a torch and you don't have a trumpet? That's your weapons. And it looks to me like that's what the whole group had. And so when God ends up with 300, they end up perfectly supplied with what they need. Isn't that cool? To, to me, it is anyway. So whatever you make of that, let's go to Blessed Assurance in verses 9 through 14. God knows Gideon's fearful heart. Notice that Gideon does not ask for affirmation. But I have to tell you, folks, this would be a really good place to ask, wouldn't it? 300 guys. I mean, think about this. 300 guys have a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. That is not much to go against this army. This is a great time to say, God, could I have a little feedback on this point? But it's God who says to him, get up. Attack the camp. I'm handing it over to you. Nothing could be clearer what the will of God is. Nothing could be clearer that God is assuring Gideon and the Israelites with him of victory. But God says to him, just in case you might happen to be afraid to attack, ta-da, 
some revelation. Huh? Just in case you're a little fearful, Gideon, if you are, then go down to the Gideonite camp, uh, the, the Midianite camp, because I've got something that you need to hear. Uh, and when you've heard it, your heart's going to be strengthened and you're going to come up encouraged and go to war. So naturally, knowing Gideon like we do, he and his servant Pura go down amongst the Midianites. And here's verse 12. And, and so here's, what I, here's the way I read this text. What Gideon saw, A, and what Gideon heard, B. What he saw was verse 12. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east covered the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels could not be counted. They were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. 300 guys looking forward to battle. No swords, just a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. Maybe it was rock music they were going to play. That would drive them nuts. Ah, never mind. Okay. So Gideon sees this innumerable host, and now God providentially arranges for him to hear the conversation of two Midianites. One Midianite says to the other, you know, I had a strange dream last night. And in that dream, this barley loaf came rolling into the camp, and it overturned one of our tents and just wiped it out. And the other uh, Midianite said, uh, Mm. I think I know what that means. It means Gideon and his men are going to clean our clocks. What I love in this is Gideon, it says Gideon worshiped the Lord. My personal opinion is he dropped on his knees right where he was, right where he was. Worship comes before war. He worships God because now he knows this is the God who not only assures him of victory, but he's given him this confidence. And by the way, that reminds me of a text in Exodus chapter 23. Remember Gideon said to God when God first, uh, the angel of the Lord came to him and he said, wait a minute, where are all these things that used to happen? The things that our forefathers used to tell us about your great victories that you did for Israel and deliverance. One of the texts that God gave to the Israelites is in Exodus 23 verse 27. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among you, among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That's what God promised, and that's what God is assuring them is going to happen. So, God's given this assurance, and, and now think about the impact that that had. One, on Gideon himself. He falls in worship. It makes of him that mighty man of valor, I think, that that was foretold by the angel of the Lord. And when he goes back to the to the uh, uh, Gideon, the, the, the people, the Abiezrites, and his, and his 300 men with his servant and tells them what they have heard, that's real encouragement, is it not? To hear from the lips of your enemy, they're going to lose. That's really good. Now, I may be wrong on this, a little speculative here. I think that what Gideon overheard had an impact on the Midianites. 
Now, we're going to come to that point where it says that, that this was the time when it was the changing of the guards and the, and the second watch. So second watch, 10 o'clock at night to 2 o'clock in the morning. And just after the watch has happened. Now, if it's kind of a typical situation, what would happen when you have a change of watch is you would have a gathering of, of the guards. In other words, it's nighttime. The Midianites are asleep. They're not planning on doing battle during the middle of the night, so they're posting guards for, for protection, but they're not really expecting anything to happen. Let's suppose that in the meeting of the guards, just at the beginning of that change of the guards, that, that, that the uh, commander says, now nah, I know that so-and-so, is, it's reported and it's been kind of rumored around you that he had a dream about this barley loaf and whatever, but don't pay any attention to that. Don't pay any attention to the fact that this dream came that God's going to give the victory over us. It doesn't mean a thing. I don't know, but it just seems to me, given the way things work in military and other ways, I see from a distance, and, and, and that is that this rumor may well have circulated amongst the Midianites. Remember it says, I'll send terror among them? So if God's going to send terror among them, if they hear the report of the dream... God's already working in their midst to make them fearful. And this is not going to be a good night for them. So it seems to me that it was a twofold impact. One was the impact upon Gideon and the Israelites with him. The other is the impact on the Midianites. Battle plans, verses 16 through 18 of chapter 7. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, when I was preparing this... And, and, I, and I think about this, they got a jar. I mean, you're equipping these guys to go to battle. You give them a jar, you give them a torch, and you give them a, a trumpet, which was really, you know, a shofar, a, a, a horn that they would blow. And all I could think of was that cartoon, I think, that our kids used to watch called A Toot, A Whistle, A Plunk, and A Boom. <laughs> I thought, that's what these guys have, A Toot, A Whistle, A Plunk, and A Boom. That's all they've got to take on the Midianites. What, what a, a, an absolute wonder. So Gideon divides these 300 men into, into three units, 100 men each. Each of them has their, their jar and their, and their torch. And I, I guess you would understand, the torch would be inside the jar, so it's like a dimmer on the light. It would be inside the jar so nobody could see. When they break the jar, then the torch becomes evident. So all of a sudden, you've got 300 torches illuminating all the way around the Midianite camp. And then you've got the, the, the blowing of the trumpet and the shout for Gideon and for the Lord. And, and obviously, that's not exactly the ideal of how you want to wake up in the middle of the night. Would you, would you agree? It's not exactly. But, but it's not really, when you think about battle plans, it's not really awesome, is it? I mean, 300 guys surrounding a horde of the enemy, no swords, just a jar, a torch, and a horn that they're going to blow. That, to me, is uh, some plan. And yet Gideon is going to go. Whatever you have to say about Gideon in terms of his fleece, he's going. Uh, and he's got his implements, too. Okay, the battle, verses 19 through 23. It is interesting to notice that the author makes a point of the timing. Why does he tell us it's at the beginning of the second watch? Now, I would have been inclined to think that it would be late in the second watch. You know, people get kind of groggy and you know how it is. You get kind of bored and nothing happens and whatever. 
why, why is it that it's at the beginning of the second watch when these guys ought to be their keenest, ought to be their freshest? Okay, I know this is really horsey, so you're just going to have to bear with me on this. Who is it that's going to be killing the Midianites? The Midianites, right? The Midianites will kill the Midianites, not the Israelites. Certainly not initially. They don't have anything to kill them with. They beat them over the head with their jar or light them up with their torch. I mean, they haven't got anything. So it's the Midianites who are going to kill the Midianites. I think God had this happen when the Midianites were their freshest because that's when they'd kill the most of themselves. It's the worst time, in a way. It's the worst time unless you take God into account and the plan that he has. So think about this. Uh, and, and by the way, one of the things one of the commentators said was, well, uh, it, it would, you would have them out there before their eyes could adjust to the darkness. That didn't cut it for me. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that what happens is when you're in the darkness, it doesn't take long for your eyes to adjust. Would you not agree with that? It doesn't take long. One of the things they say for cigarette smokers, and I know that includes very few of you, but, but for cigarette smokers is you, don't, you, don't, you shouldn't smoke while you drive. You know why? If you turn that lighter and you flick that lighter in front of your face in the dark, then your eyes are going to have to, to adjust and your pupils are going to contract and now your vision's going to be a problem. It seems to me that what happens when, when those 300 people who have surrounded this camp, when they uh, break their lamps, bring out their lights, and, and the lights, I don't think they're that bright, folks. It is not like um, the stadium where they turn on the lights and now everything's bright and it's like daylight out there. These are, look, a torch is just not an impressive light. A candle power-wise, it's really puny. But what happens is it's just bright enough to be seen. And so when somebody comes out of their stupor and they see these 300 people holding 300 torches that perfectly surrounds the group, what is the impression you get? We're surrounded. We're su- well, they were. They were surrounded. What they didn't know is we're surrounded by 300 people. And folks, in the light of a torch at a distance in the middle of the night, you're not going to be able to see who's behind those guys. So in effect, God has this thing working out of their mind. Remember in, pre, in other wars where they'll hear the sound of battle and they'll run and whatever? And, and so God's doing the audiovisual trick on them. And somehow, not only from the human perspective, but added to that the divine involvement, these people assume they are surrounded by a bigger force than themselves. And it is in the middle of the night, and all panic goes out, and these guys now start slashing away. And and notice now, the Israelites stand their ground. They don't move. And it's now the Midianites who turn on one another, just as God said they would. They turn on one another, and they begin slashing each other. And now this thing just turns into pure panic. Folks, it's in the middle of the night. You can't see what your enemy looks like. And so here they are killing one another. The 300 guys are just standing out there holding their light, blowing their horns. <laughs> and, and the image, the impression goes on. We're totally surrounded. We're going to just, we're going to just die. And off they go and run. And you notice that's when the other tribes now are brought into the fray. Okay.
What are the lessons? A, God is the hero, not Gideon. God is the hero, not Gideon. Did you not like what you saw of Gideon? You weren't supposed to. Do you think that Gideon was cowardly and and, and lacked faith? You're absolutely right. What we would like in our humanity is we would love a hero. We would love Gideon to be that great man that we're just all so proud of and whatever. And God says, you know, that's my concern. My concern, if Gideon looks too good, if the number of troops looks too many, then we're going to focus on him rather than on God. The whole point is it's God who is contending for his people. It's God who's giving them the, uh, the victory. That's why he sovereignly picked Gideon. God didn't pick Gideon and then say, ooh, what a coward. How did I get him? God picked Gideon because he was cowardly. Because he wanted us to leave this text saying, what a great God we serve. That's what this is about, is to focus on him. Just as God brought Gideon to the end of himself, just as God took those 300 and put them in a place where they had really no resources with which to bring about victory in this battle, that's what God does with every one of us when he brings us to salvation, isn't it? God pulls all the props out from under us and all of our righteous works, all of the things that we think somehow we can offer to God and say, look how great I am. God pulls those out and all we're left with is him. By the way, there's only one perfect warrior who has perfect trust in God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. I was thinking about that this morning as we were looking at John chapter 12, and as I was uh, teaching in uh, John chapter uh, 18 and chapter 19 this last uh, weekend, is there's only one person who trusts God perfectly, one person, and that's Jesus Christ. He entrusted himself to the Father. He spoke only what the Father gave him to say, He did only what the Father gave him to do, and he submitted himself to death on the cross of Calvary because he entrusted himself perfectly to the Father. So Jesus is our Gideon. Jesus is our Gideon. And we're those people who are weak and powerless and need to trust in him for salvation. B, God is God alone. See, this whole thing is really in the, in the context of Israel trusting in, in the gods of the land, the Canaanite gods, and I think maintaining some semblance of worshiping the true God as well. They, they kind of just hedge all their bets. And so the issue really is, who is really God? Who is really God? And so God has Gideon tear down the Baal altar and the Asherah pole and burn them up and stomp on them and, you know, do everything he can to offend them, so to speak. And then he names, God names Gideon, let Baal contend. In effect, God is saying, I dare you to act, Baal. I dare you to act. And he takes that Gideon and leads a battle with 300 men and gives the victory. And what do we end up saying? It is God who is God alone. Baal is nothing. He can't even take care of himself. God takes care of his whole nation with 300 people. See, Israel gets to experience God. 
Remember when we started out in Judges and it said basically the problem with the Israelites was that they hadn't entered into war and they really hadn't experienced God and his power? <laughs> I think about Gideon and I just laugh to myself. When Gideon starts this conversation with God, he says, God, where are all those victories? Where's all the stuff that we read about, about how you work to deliver your people? And God says to Gideon, roll up your sleeves, partner. And cinch up your, 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 your girdle on your, on your loins, cause I got some experience for you. Can you see Gideon? I mean, how much more experience would you like than to go into battle with 300 guys against the horde of Midianites? Is that not experiencing deliverance? And remember, God said, that's why he left them there. That battle with the Midianites was God's grace. Because he is giving his people a chance to experience his delivering power and to trust in him. Experiencing God, he got all the experience, I think, that he could have ever wanted and probably more. Call the next section, Thinking God's Thoughts. See, when we look at this text, if we look at it humanly, which naturally we would, when we look at it humanly, we say 32,000 guys against that horde of people. What we need is more fighters. The more, the better. That's what we need is we need more resources, better weapons, all of this kind of stuff. God looks at it entirely differently because God's perspective is different from ours. God's perspective is, I do this for my glory, right? That's what God's perspective is. These people need to glorify me. They need to worship me for who I am. That is the ultimate aim of this. And because the glory of God is his ultimate goal, then he, they've got too many resources. His concern is to give them more resources would give them more temptation to trust in themselves. So when God thinks divinely, he does not think numerically. He thinks in terms of what will it be that brings glory to me. And that's why the numbers don't have to be big and the leaders don't have to be heroes. Because in the end, God wants himself to be the object of our devotion and our worship. So, less is more. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think in our day, we're finding more of less. Are we not? We're finding that we're getting lesser and lesser. God is reducing our resources. And I say that not only individually, I say that in terms of a church, in terms of our country, in terms of our world. Our resources have been reduced. And there is a way in which we may be Gideons and saying, you know, if God really wanted to do something great, then he would just shower his resources upon us. That's what we need. We need more resources. And what we're saying to God is resources are our fleece. They're our fleece. We say to God, give us enough resources and we'll believe you want us to do something. Isn't that right? Give us the resources and we'll go out and we'll be obedient. And God says, no, actually it's going to work the other way. I think I'll take resources away, but the job remains the same. 
Your job is to obey me. Your job is to take the gospel into a lost world. Your job is to confront the kingdom of Satan with less, not more. And when it is evident that I am God alone, then I receive the glory. We ought to rejoice that God is reducing resources because those resources are often the thing in which we trust rather than God. Now, I want to be careful that I'm not saying because less is more that that becomes interpreted saying, whew, I don't have to give as much. I'm doing God a favor. I'm going to help God reduce the resources. In particular, I think what happens in our culture and society is that we in in evangelical circles, we look to those with the most resources that we perceive at least, and we think we really got to put the bite on them. And I was thinking about what Charlie was saying in our, in our worship time this morning and how easy it might be for somebody to say, you know what, I don't really have hardly anything at all. And since less is more, you know, then I don't need to do anything. God will do it. No, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. If less is more, then it doesn't take God much to act through you. If you have less resources than you think that God needs, you're the person, you're the Gideon who God's going to tap on the shoulder. I mean, think about it. The uh, widow with Elijah, she's to give what she has that's the last thing in her jar. Last oil, last grain, right? That's what God uses to provide for her and and her, her son and for Elijah. Five loaves and two fishes, not much. It's what God chooses to use. The widow's might, not much, but God chooses to bless it. And maybe the biggest warning of all is Matthew chapter 25, the steward who only has one talent, and he says to himself, because it isn't much, I don't think I'll do anything with it. See, if less is more, then what you do with your little is vitally important. And so here's what I want to say sort of tagging on, and the elders didn't task me to say this either, but I guess I'll say it anyway. When it comes to to financial resources, if you've not been participating at all, seems to me that's a problem, and you ought to think about it. And if you've been using how little you have as the excuse for not giving, you better think about this text, and you better think about what our Lord says about our responsibility about being faithful in little before we're faithful in much. And I just say to you, if you're not giving at all, you ought to give something. If you're giving a little and you're, and, and you're kind of hanging back, you need to talk to God about how it is you ought to be giving because God wants to use the little to bring glory to himself. And there are other people, you know, that, that can all apply across the line. But I'm just saying to you, this text tells me God reduces our resources to increase our faith and his glory. And we ought to praise him for it. Father, thank you for this text. We simply acknowledge that you are a great God. You choose the weak and the foolish things of this world to save them and to bring glory to yourself. You use weak instruments to proclaim your gospel, to do your work. You don't need great resources. You are a great God, and all we need to do is to acknowledge 
that you are great and you are faithful and that you will fulfill your promises even through us. Help us, Father, to be faithful and to obey, even if fearfully so. In Jesus' name, amen.